improve their communication skills so they can help more people and help people more. I'm your host, Dr. Martin Harvey. I'm a chiropractor and I'm an expert in communicating the value of chiropractic. Today on Under the Influence, I'm joined by one of the most fascinating people in chiropractic, Philip Ebrill. So Philip's had a remarkable career in chiropractic. He's been the head of multiple chiropractic colleges here in Australia and throughout Asia. He started several of those chiropractic colleges. He's published widely. He's a prolific author. He started an awesome journal, the Asia Pacific Journal of Chiropractic that I've mentioned a number of times on this uh, podcast where he's partnered with people like the Australian Spinal Research Foundation and others to really uh, map and support the core ideas of chiropractic. He is also an erudite and brave opponent of the people who are publishing articles that are really pushing to more or less medicalise the profession. He writes very widely as well in that he writes on the science, art and philosophy of chiropractic. And I had a really fascinating conversation with Philip, which I'm sure you will enjoy greatly. Couple of announcements. The Communication to Improve Patient Care workshop in partnership with the UCA is coming up November 21st and 24th. It will help you satisfy the GCC direction to do learning with others regarding communication. Um, and these uh, sessions are live on the evenings of November 21st and 24th UK time. So if you're based in the UK and you want to satisfy that GCC direction, you need to be on them live. If you just want the information and you live elsewhere, then you can either do them live or via the recordings. If you are frustrated with people dropping out of care, if you want to be busier and help more people, but you don't want to sell your soul and be all salesy and using high pressure tactics, then I think you're going to love the Retention Recipe 2.0. I know what it's like to want to help more people, but kind of not want to do that manipulative stuff that a lot of chiropractic procedures have embedded in them. And that's really why I created the Retention Recipe 2.0. It takes the strategies from the original recipe and uh, retention recipe and upgrades them. And there's new sections on applying those principles, uh, doing uh, procedures for kids, for pregnant people, for asymptomatic people, for situations where you need to adjust on the first visit. So it covers a wide range of uh, situations that you might find yourself. Um, if you want to be more confident in connecting people with the value of chiropractic, um, and I see that really as that idea that regardless of what people love to do, chiropractic can help them do it better, then that's the core of the Retention Recipe 2.0 and I think you'll really like it. So if you're interested, check out the, pre the free preview lessons. If it sounds like you, just sign up for the full program watch the lessons, implement the easy, effective, ethical communication strategies and sit back and watch your practice grow. There's an early bird price of $460 until the uh, beginning of October, the end of September. The link is in the show notes. Hope to see you in there. So with those announcements out of the way, uh, I'd like you to welcome to the podcast the really, really fascinating, intelligent and courageous Philip Epperell. Hi, Philip. Great to see you. 
And you too, Martin, you're looking well today. Likewise. It's uh, been a long time since we got to catch up in person, but I'm always excited to see the uh, energy and creativity that you'll bring to the profession. So thank you so much for joining us on Under the Influence today. I'm honoured that you've chosen to do so. I'm so honoured that you have actually invited me and I'm particularly impressed and must start off by congratulating you on your John Henwood Award from the ASRF. I think that speaks highly of all that you've done and contributed over quite a few years and thank you for that. Oh, no, that's my pleasure. It was uh, a big surprise and a great honour. It was, uh, I think there's few people who have contributed to chiropractic in Australia and arguably around the world than John. And so to receive an award named after him feels deeply humbling. And yeah, it was quite a surprise at the DG 2.0 recently in Melbourne. So yeah, thank you for bringing that up. That's, that's it's good to see that gathering going alive again, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a real hunger for, there's something just different about, it. there's lots of really cool things that we can do online, like well, the conversation that we're having now, but I think there is something different in terms of the impact that you get when you hear things live and also the impact that you get when you hear things with others, that, that learning with others, interacting with others, that it is something that we, there's a real hunger for and a real value to. So yeah, it's nice to get back to be with a big group of chiropractors. Mm. Excellent. So let's cut to the chase now. My favourite question to launch into a, a podcast interview. Philip, what sort of coffee are you under the influence of these days? It's actually one I didn't pay for. It was a gift from a beautiful chiropractic friend of mine in Perth, Western Australia. It's called Seven Trees. And they do a range of um, very nicely packaged coffees of different intensities and blends and so on and so forth the current one's called cafe vip i don't know what the vip is but the cafe must be just coffee i think it's given that it's for you 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 are the vip i would have thought (laughs) oh you're too kind well i'm in tokyo it's starbucks and that's mainly for the consistency of um being able to go to a place and get the same taste time after time no matter where you are in the country yeah yeah, Tokyo is an interesting sort of coffee culture. I've only been to Tokyo once and I'm very much a uh, espresso and particularly what they describe as third wave espresso where it's, uh, you know, I guess Australian uh, or Melbourne style espresso. And um, there's a growing, like I think a lot of things, Japanese people tend towards valuing really high quality and valuing that very nuanced preparation that comes along with third wave coffee. And there were some amazing espresso places in Tokyo that we were able to find while we were there, just really tiny little uh, hole in the wall sort of cafes that were doing really oh, high the level. Best. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. And so mode of preparation for your coffee, are you French press? Are you a espresso? I have been you... French press, but um, I'm currently using... Uh, I have to use a French press and grind it myself with with this, but once I've finished, uh, I think I'm on to my last one at the moment. Once I finish these containers, I'll go back to a um, Nespresso pod type system. Yeah. Yep. Not the fancy round flying saucer spinning dome thing. I think that's a bit <laughs> over the top. Just a regular one at the run Just- of the mill. Which is the basic espresso. Nice. Yeah. Excellent. So now you have been very, very busy 
um, but creating and contributing to the profession for decades, which we'll get to shortly in terms of the backstory. But I know there's a lot of projects that you're particularly active in at the moment that I'm across some of, and I suspect there's a lot that I'm not across. But what's the influence that you're trying to have these days, Philip? Well, I guess a saying that, that I keep in mind is try to make something worth wandering towards. And for me, that translates into a subluxation-based curriculum. It's a dreadful state of affairs that we have in Australia where the uh, accreditation standards do not even mention the word subluxation. Mind you, those for Canada also omit the term, and so do those for Europe. Mm. It's only the American standards that expect competency of a chiropractic student in identifying and correcting subluxation. So what are we producing? In terms of, yeah, in terms of the graduates, do you mean, or in terms yes. of the curriculum what, itself? What, what yeah. are the graduates doing? What are they believing when they come out? Are they um, understanding that within the power of the adjustment, there, there's tremendous benefit for a whole range of patients and things, or are they coming with a mindset of, we'll just manipulate here and sort of go surfing in between and then come back and do a bit more manipulation and, you know, that, that sort of thing. Are we, are we producing dedicated chiropractors, people with the spark and the mission and the fire in their belly? Well, I guess, you know, I don't want to be one of those uh, grumpy old guys complaining about the state of the world, but it seems to me that we've got a cohort of young chiropractors and students at least in Australia and, you know, I guess elsewhere where I've spent time in the UK and Europe, where a lot of them, unless they've gone to one of the institutions that specifically has elected to have a focus around subluxation, it is an area of at least confusion. They've either sought clarification outside their education or they've, they've sort of graduated with what I would describe as a confused perspective around what their role was. They're, they're not mm. certain about even what the choices are in terms of practice style. Mm. Yes, I think so we have we, to think about that. Oh, definitely. I think we need to do more than think and you know create action around it for sure. Um, so in terms then of a subluxation-based curriculum that you're developing, is, there, is that tied to a particular institution or are you looking to have a wider effect in terms of that curriculum? Where, where are you at with that? Um, we've run it in uh, with a focus in Tokyo and that's been very well until the WFC got involved and didn't like that um, and we can see a history there that um, from the GCC around 2010-11 from the ECU at around 2012 um, and then the WFC from about 2018 and most notably that uh, meeting in Europe yeah. where the then president, Laurie Tassel, resigned soon afterwards, we see there's an antithesis towards subluxation. And the irony is that the WFC is now attempting to do a global, a global standards and global curriculum type committee, which, which is, I think, quite ironic. But apart from that and um, running it through... Uh, Tokyo. It's, it's coming up for the basis of a 
entire six-year curriculum in a private university uh, owned by a city uh, in one of the Asian countries in which I work. The ink's not dry on the contract yet, so I can't be too more specific. And yeah, I don't like sort of keeping secrets, but this is one I I actually have committed to uh, because if people knew where we were and what we were doing, there would be a lot of negative influence to upset it. I experienced that when we worked with the International Medical University, IMU, in Kuala Lumpur. And a colleague from Australia sat across the table from me and condemned absolutely everything uh, that we were trying to do. And that was in a meeting with the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Education. And it was not a good look for chiropractic as a profession. In the end, that person said, well, I guess it's okay. You go ahead and do it. (laughs) That's sort of like, you know, you're ugly, but I'll marry you. You know, it doesn't work. Can I just pause for a moment? And I think I feel like uh, just for clarity, I might just define a few of the things that you were talking about. So WFC's World Federation of Chiropractic, which is, I guess, sort of an organisation of organisations that many of the larger uh, professional associations have representation on and I guess positions itself or is or is the peak body for chiropractic uh, internationally in terms of membership in UN organisations and so on. Um, the GCC is the General Chiropractic Council, which is the regulator in the UK. Uh, the ECU is the European Chiropractic Union, which uh, has a similar role across Um, a number of the EU countries and we were talking about your the Tokyo College Um, did you want to perhaps just give us uh, what your your role was and is with the Tokyo College? Along with Andy Kleinhans I was representing RMIT to take our RMIT program into Japan and that's where we formed the chiropractic, the RMIT chiropractic unit Japan. Then RMIT changed its politics and um, dropped any association. So it became an independent Tokyo College of Chiropractic. In 2018, uh, the founding president retired and I was appointed to that position, which I currently hold. Excellent. Exciting. So now you're you're developing the curriculum, which is being applied in Tokyo and also in potentially another place uh, contract pending. Um, What are the other influences that you are looking to have these days? I want the, um, I want, this is quite selfish. I want the joy of clinicians talking to clinicians and hence the journal. It's not a highfalutin academic journal, the Asia-Pacific Chiropractic Journal. It's by clinicians for clinicians. So we like to run with case reports. We like to run with explanations of things, things that people and students may not necessarily yet know about. Um, And when we do have something terribly exciting like um, Mark Pick's work on cranials and showing how that affects the um, size of the um, dura at the level of the sacrum because of the CSF movements, you know, you start to think, hang on, there is something in what we're doing. And bringing the students into that is very important, which is why we have a close relationship with the WCCS, the World Congress of 
chiropractic students and publish a piece from them in each issue. And uh, I was talking earlier today with their external affairs director, and we're trying to see what else can the journal give to the students to make us more integrated, if you like, or where the students are going in their different programs worldwide. No, it's a, a congratulations on the journal. It's really a remarkable publication. For people who aren't aware of it, uh, I'll have a link in the show notes to the Asia Pacific Chiropractic Journal, but it is very much that uh, practitioner-oriented uh, journal where you can either look at it to understand a particular area more deeply or to just have expand your horizons and understanding of different areas of chiropractic and stimulate your thoughts around the potential of chiropractic and along with that it's a it's free access journal as well it's uh it's a wonderful resource so i would encourage if you haven't checked it out to make it part of your regular professional development part of your regular professional reading it's really a wonderful journal and the other thing that i love about it is I will look at JMPT, I'll look at some of those other, or Spine or any other journal that probably is more embedded in a biomedical kind of model rather than an explicitly chiropractic model. And I almost have to do the mental gymnastics of well, what does this mean to me as a chiropractor when I'm practicing in a paradigm that is uses the same anatomy physiology, et cetera, but views things through a different philosophical lens, how does this apply to me? Whereas one of the things with the Asia Pacific Journal is that it, it comes with a chiropractic orientation. You don't have to interpret it through an, a chiropractic interpretation. Well, I'm really glad that you're finding that. Thank you. Yeah. So um, that, that journal's now been going for two years. We went to our third year. Third year. Yeah. Excellent. So there's a good, uh, if it's new to you, there's a good uh, back catalogue to work your way through. Um, anything else that you wanted to talk about in terms of the journal? Oh, actually, one other thing that I thought was super exciting with it, it, there's a collaboration, a partnership with the Australian Spinal Research Foundation to really grow the number of case reports. And so I know that the journal publishes a number of the case reports that have been facilitated through the uh, ASRFs case reports project. Did you want to maybe speak a little bit to, to that? I would like to express my gratitude to the board of ASRF because of their vision to um, pursue and hunt down what subluxation is and means. Um, and they've found it appropriate to um, invest in a writer <clears throat> who is specifically there to take the notes from clinics and turn them into a readable paper. You know, it, it's not um, a definitive literature review of this and that and whatnot. We don't need that anymore. We just need to know what are the top five relevant papers on this. So what do we know and what does this add so that the reader can make the decision, wow, yeah, that, that's interesting. I might try that or I'm not interested. But if we don't get it out there and get it indexed and have it available, well, then we don't even have that choice. And I'm grateful to the ASRF and their team that they've assigned to make this project really work. Um, so just while we're talking about that, I was really interested to read an article that you uh, have written recently looking at, I guess, a more appropriate vision of evidence-based practice or a more effective filter, or appropriate filter, I should say, for 
chiropractors than, um, you know, perhaps that very reductionist um, uh, model of the Sackett or, you know, the, the uh, best available evidence um, and then the hierarchy of evidence that seems to be used as a bit of a weapon against chiropractic. Did you maybe want to describe a little bit of, or give us a, your, a little uh, pricey of your excellent article, which is um, in the, uh, the in Asia the Pacific Chiropractic a new, Journal. Yeah, a new evidence hierarchy. <clears throat> yeah. And I'll try and keep this short and succinct. Basically, there is no reality. Um, things like tastes. It's a provocative thought. <laughs> well, it is. Um, yeah. A definition I've read recently of reality is something that is there when there's nobody to observe it. Now, that means that for it to be real to us, we have to observe it, which means we use our senses. So things like tastes, odors, colors are not real. They are our interpretations on what we put on top of things. So in other words, it's how we see something. And in this case, that something can be subluxation in a patient. So how we see that patient, uh, how we figure out what might be going wrong with them so that you can figure out what you can do to maybe correct that and give them a, a better chance at reaching their optimal health and well-being, well, then, to me, that should be the highest evidence that you've got. Yeah. There, you, you, cannot do a, you just cannot do a study that says of you know, 45,210 people with a left atlas um, anterior, superior, yeah. for instance, um, and when we adjusted that, they all got better. Yeah, that, that stuff is, is completely impossible because what if you're an SOT practitioner yeah. and you look at the sacrum? Or yeah. what if you're um, using the upper cervical adjusting device or the activator? Or if you take in maybe with a Gonstead approach and consider that it's something around thoracolumbar? Yeah, all these things work. So where is the truth? And there's another paper it's called the perspectival truth. It's how we see things and how a chiropractor sees things should be the highest level of evidence in their practice. We don't have to prove that we are good at um, lowering workers' compensation costs. We already know that. And that's not evidence. That's just, that's just a reporting of fact that the patients who see chiropractors first have lower workers' compensation costs. And that's been shown again just this year recently out of the United States. So the things that really matter are the things that happen in that very small interlude between the chiropractor and their client, their patient, their practice member, their tribe, whatever you like to call it. There's a very special moment. And the greater sanctity and respect we give that special moment uh, the more we will move towards understanding what it is that we do. Yeah, yeah. So I remember a number of years ago that around the time, what was the paper that was done um, some years ago, uh, I think in the wake of the... Uh, it was done in the wake of the advertising issues in the UK, the, the Bromford report is the word I'm looking for, where they essentially they used that very sort of mechanistic 
uh, tool of what are there, is there high level of evidence to say that chiropractic is a good treatment? And I'm doing inverted uh, commas yeah, there around treatment. <laughs> yeah, the, the limitations of an audio podcast. I feel like I have to say <laughs> them too. Um, but I, at the same time, I think it was, it might have been Cheryl Hawke wrote a, a book or wrote a, a paper at the time on whole systems research, essentially saying that as a complex approach, if you used a whole systems research approach to as a filter for what was appropriate evidence, even that lens meant that there was, and within that treatment of conditions model, there was a whole lot of other impacts that there was evidence to support. And then if we go a level beyond that and look at, well, ultimately our ethical uh, obligation I feel like is can I help the person that is in front of me and what's my clinical experience and my understanding of anatomy and physiology what can I do to help them most it does feel like the that narrowing of the lens means that there's a lot of people who aren't getting the help that they should get yes and that's the tragedy isn't it mm. particularly Absolutely. when we're we are committed to the fundamental human right of access equal access to um, healthcare, and that includes the healthcare provider of your choice. It, it's fundamental, and I think for some in the profession to be limiting that, and um, even criticising students who are thinking that maybe if I do adjust this patient and correct this subluxation, there might be a change. That's being demeaned as being magical thinking. And you yeah. think, what on earth are these students meant to do when they're told, if you're going to do something, that's magical thinking, if you expect an outcome? Yeah, for heaven's sake. It is, uh, yes. It's a dangerous path we are on. And thank you for all your work in helping a, a path back towards a, a one that's going to be better for the profession and better for the people that we serve. So if people want to read the article, it's called A More Inclusive Evidence Hierarchy for Chiropractic, and it is in the Asia-Pacific Chiropractic Journal. That might be a good segue into some of the work that you've been doing as well on the philosophy of chiropractic, chiropractic philosophy, probably useful for us to define our terms as uh, I know you're excellent at doing. So what, tell me, what's the difference between chiropractic philosophy and the philosophy of chiropractic? Chiropractic philosophy is the spark that makes it work. And it's the, it's the present time consciousness. It's the faith, confidence, and belief that this is the right thing to be doing. And that's very different and much more exciting than what I'm doing, which is looking at it as a, as a philosophy of science. Um, what is the philosophy of chiropractic and where does it come from? What are its groundings? All the questions that chiropractic philosophy doesn't really bother itself with because they're not needed. When, mm -hmm. you're, when you're fired up as a chiropractor doing what you're doing with your, you know, with your passion. But for us to be able to get a handle on how it might work, or what we might be dealing with, there's a lot of tools there and the tools for the philosophy of the science of chiropractic are constantly emerging. Um, I've just created a folder on my desktop, which I'm looking at now. Um, there's things about the, the brain's role in immunity and there are things like the gut's role and the, the, all the micro 
buggy things in your belly, yeah. you know, the, the drive your immunity and, and your brain's approach to things. There's things about the insular resting state and there's questions about, you know, how your brain hallucinates what you're doing and seeing. And if we understand that, that what we are seeing and doing is basically an hallucination, then it helps us understand why we can be passionate about something. Because re the reality, using that term, is yeah. that I was, this would have made a lot more sense if, if we had were a visual thing, but we're not. We're an audio thing. But even with the audio, you're not hearing me talk as if I'm right there with you. You're hearing a sampling of my voice yeah. at probably 500 times a second, 500 hertz or whatever it may be. And that's going into your brain and then your brain's assembling it into something. So if I say banana, every person listening to this podcast will picture a banana. Mm. Now, is it a green one or is it a yellow one or mm -hmm. is it a red one? Yeah. You know, is it straight or bent? These are the creations that we make up with the words that we use, the things that we think we feel when we're palpating a patient. Um, when you're running heavily on chiropractic philosophy, you really don't have time to think about these things because you are pattern matching and you are matching that with all this input that's coming in from your brain and you're looking for templates. And before you can actually do anything with your adjustment, your brain has to pull out a template that matches the inputs that are coming from your fingers, which tell you what you're feeling in that patient at that time in front of you. Yeah. And that will never be the same. It's like a snowflake. Yeah. It's, it's totally different from patient to patient. Again, why we really need to reconsider our hierarchy of evidence. It's interesting you say that because as you were describing that, where my brain was going was looping back to your, the initial discussion around a curriculum that if you're not trained within that context and concept of vertebral subluxation, that when you find this, it, it has this potential meaning in terms of abnormal joint motion. It has this potential meaning in terms of um, disaffrontation. It has this potential. Meaning. It's very difficult to create a pattern that represents that on the other side of that, that we, we need to start with that education piece um, and then have that the an allowance within that to have a hierarchy of availability and, and relevance of information that matches the environment that people are, are going into when they're practicing. Yes, exactly. And that that's, you've got it in a nutshell. And if you and I can understand that, why can't the Council on Chiropractic Education, Australasia, Europe, um, Canada, why can't they understand that? There is nothing in the accreditation standards that says a graduate chiropractor will have a model in their head that will help their brain predict what they're going to deal with, give them the intent to deal with it, and measure their adjustment output. You know, we know this stuff. We know the speed of an adjustment or the velocity of it. And we know that it needs to be completed within about 80 to 100 milliseconds to beat the spindle response. We know that we're delivering X amount of newtons of force and that's different around the sacrum as it is around the neck. We know these things, but nowhere 
um, there, is there a requirement to teach them? Yeah. So we're graduating therapists. Yeah. It's interesting, if, if I can digress for a minute, I, a number of years ago, I went on a bit of a deep dive around this idea that we talk about in chiropractic called certainty, that if you go to chiropractic gatherings, that people who are successful, whatever metric you want to put around that in terms of the phenomenal clinical results they seem to get, the number of people they see, any of those metrics, you'd speak to chiropractors and you say, well, what's the secret to doing this? And most of them seem to say something around certainty. And I looked at that and then I wanted to have that when I was just graduating. And in talking to chiropractors, I'd get this kind of mixed story around how they got it. They got it through what we've spoken about, the philosophy, the chiropractic philosophy through reading green books or blue books or whatever else. And my idea and sort of the model that I've created is yes that's a certain that seems to create a, a level of certainty around the potential for chiropractic to help however for that to not kind of leak out you then need to have a paradigm i.e a model of subluxation and clinical rules around who needs who is in an emergency situation and needs to go straight to the emergency department and who is likely to uh, respond to chiropractic care or have a trial of care or uh, how you can tell through your clinical testing that they're doing better and then align procedures with that in terms of communication and clinical procedures so that you know that you've sort of delivered on the promise. And I think we, if we loop into that discussion that we're having around the challenge with curriculum in a lot of chiropractic institutions is even if you have access to the philosophy by reading the books or engaging with speakers or however else you get it um that taking away that paradigm piece of it not having your education build a robust structure of subluxation and how your clinical testing allows you to detect and know that a correction has taken place or monitor progress over a period of time really does make for a very uncertain graduate or a very uncertain chiropractor certainly does doesn't it Interesting. I think, yeah, I think that's the biggest challenge facing chiropractic as a profession. Yeah. Right, right so, at this time. That's the quality of our education. So in terms of like a, you're a very solution-oriented person and you know you're actively working to create solutions to this problem that we we need people to get behind and support in the environment, those regulatory environments and in the other, there's a whole politics to it. But much of the audience of the podcast are young chiropractors. And so they also need on a, a micro level rather than that macro level, they need a path to increase their, their certainty. Are there resources or approaches that you would see as I'm sitting here, I've been in practice for a couple of years, I'm a fourth year student, I've been in practice for 10 years, and I feel like I missed that piece of my education. Is there an approach that you would say, look, this is, obviously there's not one step, but are, are there things that you would point people towards to, <clears throat> I guess, sort of bridge that gap? The first question I would ask is, how many experienced chiropractors have you spent time with? Mm-hmm. Who have you gone to see? Who have you sat in the room with? Yeah. Now, and even now, I do that. Yeah. I'll go and sit in a room with um, Bruce Ellis in in um, Gisborne. Yeah. You know, and other chiropractors. 
Andrew Vincent in, in Brisbane. And you see amazing things and you see the thinking. And if the younger person says, oh, three or four, well, they'll say, well, that's where your education is short. You know, until you've seen 20 or 30 or 40, and unless you're still going to these people now, well, then you're not getting the, the handle on what is the um, current status of practice. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. All right, now that's, I think, very useful advice. That's excellent. So um, get out there and interact with people who and learn from their experience. So you almost sort of download the, what's Bruce probably for, coming up for 40 years. 40, 40, 40 years or more. Yes. More than 40 years, there's a wealth of knowledge and particularly somebody like Bruce, who's such a great thinker about what he does. That's, I think, a really important uh, way of getting learning from his experience rather than to having to create the experience yourself. I can personally vouch for that as I did my field work with Bruce back in 1989 yes. uh, and did a small locum for him. Thankfully, it wasn't long enough to screw his practice, so he came back and it, it all went well. But I mean, it's you add everything you say that there, there are there are a lot of chiropractors like Bruce who want to talk, and yeah. they'll take a student to lunch, and they'll take a new graduate to lunch, and you'll go out and you'll chat, and you'll think, "Gee, I never thought about that," or and whatnot. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful environment. It's um part of. That thing, as a, as a pragmatic philosopher, I want to work towards effective altruism. And that's why this conversation with you is so joyous for me, because you are an expression of effective altruism with all the good that you've done in your particular time, as we mentioned at the beginning. But if we can use evidence and reason to help others as much as possible, well, then we are starting to fulfill our purpose, I think. And the best thing is to get people talking. You know, and, and that's that's why the accreditation standards have gone to pot because they sit in a room and they make it up. And mm. I'm not joking. They, they're not out talking to universities unless they are criticizing, condemning and measuring. There hasn't been for ages, if ever, a meeting that says, what should be in a chiropractic program? I saw a piece of work out of um, Macquarie University this year that said, here's, here's the curriculum for anatomy and the start for anatomy in a chiropractic program. And the starting point was, what is medical anatomy? And that's <laughs> what, what do we take away from medical anatomy to leave the bits that chiropractors should know? You know, and if that's the level of intellect that's feeding our profession, no wonder we're having students who aren't really understanding the pathways in neurology and you know, the way the messages go in, the messages come out, why we need to practice our genie flicks, you know, that we've got memories within our arms, we've got memories in the muscles of our neck, all these things combine to make our input. And as you mentioned a few moments ago, unless we have a model that we can put all these things into, then how do we learn to adjust? 
Yeah, uh, interesting. That's very profound and important. So in terms of the discussion we were having around the work that you're doing in the in uh, a philosophy of science, a, a chiropractic view of a philosophy of science, is there a way that uh, people can interact or understand that if they're wanting to go into that sort of deeper part of the pool? Well, I'm not as clever with internet-y things as you are. Um, I beg to differ. I think you were the very <laughs> first person who published a, uh, a a chiropractic a textbook a chiropractic textbook via uh, Apple iTunes. Oh, the Apple um, Book things, yeah, yes. they are great. They're still yes. good value, and they're free yeah. too. Um, yeah. But the, the, I'm I'm going tentatively. I'm on Vimeo, um, and I've got a. a channel or a collection or whatever they call it there uh, and I update it every couple of months I'm due to load another or five as soon as I've shot and edited them they've been written every video that I make is written as a paper in other words it's fully referenced and it's um, as evidence-based as I can make it so it's not just a case of standing in front of a camera and saying I think this and that it's a case of saying this is what the literature is telling us about these sorts of things. And that's not boring. It can be terribly exciting. Yes. Oh, at least it is to me. No, I agree. <laughs> yeah. So, no, I think it's incredibly important as well in terms of uh, you were, I think the way that you delineated it as I understood it earlier was chiropractic philosophy is important for us to be engaged and excited in our clinical work, in our interaction in, with the people in our practice and the people in our community to develop as a profession, I think the uh, philosophy of science, the philosophy of chiropractic, the, the work that you're doing there where we're looking at that the epistemology, the metaphysics, the in a very, uh, I guess, uh, rigorous way is in, incredibly important. And it's the mark of a mature profession that we're willing and able to do that sort of work. So thank you for your work in that area. And I know there's a lot of people who listen to the podcast who do want to do that or engage with that serious intellectual heavy lifting that that is involved in there. And by serious, I don't, I mean, just that it's structured rather. It doesn't have to be, as you say, boring. It can be incredibly enlightening. I try to keep each video to about seven minutes. I figured out in the classroom that the best attention span is between five and seven minutes for a learner. Mm. Um, and there was a little piece I read earlier today that said why we feel tired at the end of a day of intellectual work is because the glutamate builds up in our brain and mm -hmm. sort of fogs us a bit. So yeah, that's why we had take breaks. We'll do it in short bits. And every video that I make has got a transcript that's there that can be downloaded. And again, that's all free. Uh, okay. People can take it. They can put it on their own websites. They can do whatever they like with it. Uh, but it's there as, uh, as my gift. Thank you for your generosity. So we've got the journal, we've got the uh, the work that you're doing there with the um, philosophy of chiropractic. And is that via a website or via a Vimeo channel? Um, both. There's both. a website, ebrel.something. Ebrel That's all right. We'll have the, we'll have the uh, link in the show notes. And if, you're a, if you get my 
emails that'll be in that also. So I'll make sure that's in the show notes. Yeah, it's evrule.com, simple as that. Yep. Great. Uh, and then there's a link to the Vimeo channel, but you, you get all the videos and it all depends on the individual. Uh, and the, I mean, the big thing with the journal is that it's heavily meant. My whole intent is for it to be like an Apple book on a device. Yeah. You know, so it's designed for phones and iPads. Um, yeah. It's designed to quickly go to, see something, get the idea. That's that's the way I think we need to be communicating. Fantastic. So this might be a useful segue. We've spoken about and we've sort of spoken about your journey, but we haven't spoken of your journey yet because you've had a number of different roles in chiropractic and you've had a number of different, I guess, sort of chapters in your life, uh, both pre-chiropractic and along the journey to chiropractic. So perhaps might a useful place to start with that might be what influenced you to get involved in chiropractic and probably with you, I'm sort of curious to, to, if you could maybe explain what you were doing prior to being a chiropractor. Prior to being a chiropractor, I was a broadcaster. I got my first paycheck, a 10 shilling note in 1961, September. And I was paid every week from 1961 through to um, 1984 when I came across the Nullarbor to go into the PIT program. And it was on radio in Esperance, a station that I founded and started and managed and all of that. I was interviewing on the morning program Richard McMinn, um, who was the chiropractor in Esperance. Yes. And uh, we were chatting after the interview and, and whatnot. And he said, well, why don't you become a chiropractor? I said, what on earth do you mean? Well, the conversation went on. He said, come and see me tomorrow. I thought, okay, here's another hundred bucks consultation. But no, it wasn't that at all. He very generously gave me the time and lit the passion in me. Uh, and that passion was to pack up from that life uh, into six cartons, a suitcase and a motorbike. And got on the back of a truck of a truck driver, a truckie that I knew, um, and came across to Melbourne. And got in, well, had my interview in Perth, got into the program and started yep. in 85. And that was absolutely lovely. And sort of it went along from there. In 1988, I was president of the WCCS and we had our WCCS's first conference outside yeah. of America, down here in Australia. And since then, Australian um, protégés have had, I think, another three WCCS conferences in Australia. Yep. So that's absolutely wonderful to see. Um, I've started a few programs, Kuala Lumpur, Korea, uh, Japan. Um, I rebuilt the RMIT program several times, once into a double bachelor from a bachelor, a single bachelor of four and a half years into a double bachelor of five, then into a bachelor master um then back into a double bachelor because of politics and then went up to queensland and gave them the chiropractic program on three campuses Mackay, uh, brisbane which is going gangbusters and sydney which is now closing but the beauty of Mackay is that it's the first chiropractic program in australia outside a capital city it's in the regions it's in Mackay, and you know a marvelous little town that's just full of wonderful things and a great program 
Yeah, and that's the CQ. That's in partnership with or through uh, yeah, CQU is, Central. It is CQ University. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So you've been uh, an academic. You've been in practice. You've been the head of programs. You've been the founder of programs. You've had quite a journey there. What would you? Who or what would you say have been your biggest sort of chiropractic influences? Who do you feel has or what has kind of guided your development and direction in terms of the way you see chiropractic, the way that you have? chosen to contribute in that way? Good question. I would have to say it's the graduates that I've influenced who give back to me. Mm -hmm. um, and wherever I go, there will be someone that said, I remember you said this. You know, and conversations with a, with a graduate that I haven't seen for a while usually start with, I remember when you said that. And I think, God, did I do that? <laughs> but it's indelible and it's marvelous to see a number of very very successful graduates who are doing great work uh and i think that's a good reason to get out of bed in the morning and keep that cycle going my yeah. other life influences are shinto and the shinto form of yamabushi they okay. follow uh, uh Gendo, which is a ancient religion about self-discipline and self-improvement uh, and the link to mountains and being born in Queenstown and surrounded by mountains, I, I really resonate with that as, as a way of life and a way of thinking. Uh, interesting. And so you would, uh, in terms of your uh, how you came across that, was that something that you came across as a, a uh, system of belief in Japan or had you yes. already? Yeah. Yes, there's always... I'll always go to a temple. And when I'm in a Western city, I'll always go to a cathedral. You know, and it was so exciting in Seoul to have the hotel that I was in was opposite their main Catholic cathedral, which is on the top of a large mountain. And um, the, it's a symbol of resistance. Mm -hmm. If ever the cathedral fell to the crowd, then the country would crumble. And so outside the hotel was the main access and that's where the police were and when there were the riots and the public in the street. And my word, they were very civilised riots. Um, <laughs> although I did get tear gassed at one stage, but <clears throat> that's another story. Um, but going to temples and then understanding the difference between temples and shrines and then looking at the history when you can look in a glass cupboard and see a real sword that's two and a half thousand years old and you think wow you know people have carried that and fought with that and killed with that and that got me into Masashi who is a very effective killing machine um, but his discipline it was something amazing. Okay, interesting. So a couple of little threads I'd like to pull apart from that, if that's okay, is, um, first of all, what is the difference between a temple and a shrine? Temples are Buddhist and shrines are Shinto. Got it. Okay. And they have different rites, different ways of being and different, um, different gods and, and beliefs, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess that's the easiest way. Okay, excellent. And... Um, Tear guest. How did you come to be tear guest? Oh, well, the, the, the crowd was outside the hotel and the police were cordoning off the street to save the cathedral. And I wanted to go across and um, 
go to a little shop on the other side of the road. So I just <laughs> wandered through the police and then the tear gas went off and I ended up in the hotel crying my eyes out. Okay, but I yeah, was I safe. I can imagine you know, getting tear gas to go to the 7-Eleven seems like um, not a uh, <laughs> thing a you'd normally extreme, expect to have happen. Yeah, absolutely. So it's been quite a journey. So um, you've gone from Queenstown to uh, Western Australia, back to Melbourne, then around the world, you know, having an impact on chiropractic and the, the people that are beneficiaries of chiropractic, both in the profession and outside of that. What's the path forward? What do you anticipate? What are you, what's, what are you planning to have happen in the next stanza? Well, having um, been attacked by liver cancer in 2014, which is the illness that caused me to close my contract a year earlier with Central Queensland University, and then being bedridden and <clears throat> damn near dead until my transplant in September 2017, I want to try to keep my life clean and healthy and hopefully uh, with the beautiful liver that I've got, and beautiful is the term that the surgeon used, um, I'll keep going for another 30 years. And so I, I just want to keep writing. Um, I'm just finishing a paper, <clears throat> pardon me now, which develops a universal meaning of subluxation in chiropractic. And by universal meaning, I mean, I've been able to use the evidence in the literature to build a paragraph about subluxation, what chiropractors do with it, that holds its meaning in 15 different languages, from Arabic to Russian, to Korean, Japanese, uh, Hindi, Danish, French, Filipino, and so on, we can wow. get a meaning. And it might be worthwhile finishing on that if I could just Absolutely. find that paragraph and read it exactly. I've got my paper here, so please bear with me just yeah, a minute course. until I find that paragraph. I feel, I feel like we're building drama and excitement by uh, a little pause here, Phil. <laughs> this, is, this is the way that I think our profession can talk about subluxation. And I'll preface it by saying, I don't care two hoots what you think subluxation is or isn't. Uh, it's a word. It's used. We need to understand how we use it. So I want to say the collective noun subluxation is used within the discipline of chiropractic by chiropractors to predominantly denote one or more clinical signs and symptoms evidenced on and by physical examination. Conceptualized as exhibiting elements of biomechanical dysfunction to variable degrees, subluxation may be identified in a specific joint complex of the spine, known as a spinal mobility unit or other structures, and is corrected manually using a hands-only controlled and rapid therapeutic thrust with intent. The thrust may be mechanically assisted. The outcome of such correction is an adjustment of systematic, oh, sorry, systemic neural tone, which may be supported with lifestyle elements from nutrition to exercise. Now, when I translate that into those languages and then reverse translate it back into English, the meaning that I give those words remains. 
And that's a really good starting point for our profession to be able to talk about things. So when you say subluxation, you can mean what you want. Yes. But knowing that that word and that context of chiropractic will convey that meaning. Excellent. So I guess it's that... Uh that important filter of making sure that if we're centering our practice on this, that we have a, a shared understanding of what we mean is seems like an incredibly important starting point for moving, moving uh, further along. I would like to think so. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you, Philip, for a really enlightening, enjoyable discussion. And uh, even bigger than that, thank you for your contribution over I guess, half a century of uh, contributing to the chiropractic profession and uh, to us as chiropractors and to the people that we serve. I, I uh, love and admire the work that you've created. It really is quite remarkable. So thank you for all of that. And thank you for sharing some of it with us today on Under and the Influence. Please accept my gratitude for this time with you. My absolute pleasure. <laughs> If you liked today's episode, then you will love the Retention Recipe 2.0. It's an online workshop that is broken into 33 lessons and has over seven hours of content, which will teach you to confidently communicate the value of proactive chiropractic in the first 12 visits. So if we want to have long-term retention, if we want people to stay with us for months, years, and reap the really amazing health benefits that happen with long-term chiropractic care, we need to set the foundation for that in the first 12 visits. So the approaches in the retention recipe 2.0 are based on state-of-the-art influence strategies that are effective, ethical, and they're enjoyable to use. They will help you to have more fun, less stress, and increase your retention, which means more practice growth and less always being on the hunt for new people. Check it out in the link in the show notes.